The Lord be with you. So I was watching an episode of Hee Haw the other day. Some of you might remember that show. I only had a vague recollection of it, watching it as a child. And they played a Tammy Wynette song I, I don't think I had ever heard. It was a song, it was the title track from her 1978 album, Womanhood. Any Tammy fans in the house? No? She was a force, that lady. She could really sing. And the song is about a woman who just got back from a date and the man dropped her off on the porch and he tried to kiss her. And then this real deep voice comes in after the first verse and he's like, I heard her say. And she's like, I am a Christian Lord, but I'm a woman too. Which is already a challenge, can't you be? You can be both, right? <laughs> if you are listening, Lord, please show me what to do. I definitely started this too high, but that's fair. <laughs> this is going to be the tricky part. I'm trying hard. Okay, I got that. Hard to be what mama says is good. As I step into my womanhood. So I thought, yeah, that really speaks to me. (laughs) Like so many great songs in history, womanhood speaks with a refreshing and some sort of unnerving frankness that bears witness to what you could just call the struggle. How is a person supposed to live a good life and navigate romance And have a career and be kind and make a family and do the dishes and pay the bills and cope with real trauma and toxic relationships and get to sleep at night somehow. All while the expectations of a moral code and a sense of purpose and a life of faith hang over your head too. The struggle is real. And there are so many ways to get it wrong. Tammy Wynette wrote a lot of songs about the struggle, and she knew just how well things could go, and she knew just how bad a turn things could take. The same woman who wrote, Stand by your man, also wrote, Don't come home a-drinking, with lovin' on your mind. Your good girl's gonna go bad, and D-I-V-O-R-C-E. The more you know about Tammy Wynette's story, the more you just want to swoop right in and rescue her. The poets in the Old Testament, they sang songs brimming with the struggle of the nations. The prophets really knew how to sing a song of woe and weary and frustration. Jeremiah joined with the daughters of Jerusalem in their mourning. The psalmist sat by the rivers of Babylon, seething with anger and regret. Ezekiel and Isaiah filled page after page with warnings of certain judgment because of idolatry, oppression of the poor, naming and calling out injustice, spiritual deafness, blindness of God's people. 
How is a nation supposed to protect its borders, maintain its economy, sustain families, do the dishes, pay the bills, keep their covenant with the living God? What a responsibility. The judgment of the prophets is a brutal reminder of the failure of God's people over and over and over again. How much scolding can anyone take? I think a lot of us are familiar with brands of religion that are a clanging gong of judgment and condemnation that miss the point entirely. That's because that wasn't the whole message of the prophets. These prophetic warnings of judgment always point to a path of redemption, a path to healing and renewal. They're deadly serious, but they're always with God's purpose. Messages of hope, hope for desperate people. As Old Testament Bible story kings go, and in the popular memory of the day, King Uzziah had a pretty good run. A relatively stable and impressive 52-year reign. Being king is its own kind of struggle, isn't it? Like they say, kinging ain't easy. Probably Uzziah's biggest accomplishment was that he somehow managed to keep peace with all the nations around him. Which by many measures made him a better than okay king. If you read your way through the story of the children of Israel, a pretty clear pattern emerges. It outlines an extensive list of the ways that the biblical kings came to ruin. Corruption, incompetence, idol worship, carelessness, the influence of foreign wives, debauchery and decadence, blasphemy. Compared to some of the embarrassingly depraved And immoral kings over the years, Uzziah was a solid B. B plus, maybe. But then if you read 2 Chronicles 26, we find that being a king finally went to Uzziah's head. With some tragic, tragic consequences. You see, Uzziah went the blasphemy route. At some point he thought... Wouldn't it be a good idea if the king did everyone just a huge favor? Uh, If I entered maybe the sacred space of the temple, the place set apart for rituals carried out by priests who had given their lives and consecrated themselves for holy purposes. I mean, wouldn't it be great if the king just walked right into the holy place to personally make an offering on the altar of incense the way only a king can. I mean, why not, right? Bad idea, Uzziah. We're told that 80 priests, 80 sincere voices stood in protest warning the king, don't do what you are about to do. This is a terrible plan. But Uzziah doesn't listen. Picture this scene. There's the king, and he's indignant, and he's entitled, and he's standing in the temple. And no doubt he's wearing some sort of ridiculous king outfit he's chosen for the day. And there he is in the holy place holding this bowl of smoldering incense. Full of indignation. Full of rage. 
Second Chronicles says, Now he had a censer in his hand to make an offering. And when he became angry with the priests, a leprous disease broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests, in the house of the Lord, by the altar of incense. Isaiah would be a leper till the end of his days. The first five books of, in the book of Isaiah, or for five chapters, sorry, in the book of Isaiah, are a poetic smackdown. They're an ominous prophecy of dire warning, a declaration of national failure. Isaiah says, Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not defend the orphan, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Words of judgment and condemnation. Isaiah warns that the day of reckoning is at hand. Local sins, failure to care for the little people, selfish habits and practices, global consequences. This means that other nations will come as the hand of God's judgment, devastating the land, laying waste to the city. And then we get to Isaiah 6, the passage we read today. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Somebody just opened up the airlock and blew Isaiah into the presence of the holy God. And what a strange and beautiful vision. This is Israel's temple, but not like anything anyone has ever seen before. Full of bizarre angelic creatures with six wings standing in attendance saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah has gotten a glimpse behind the veil of reality, the place where everything that exists is held together. This is a glimpse at the inner chamber, the throne room of the universe, the nuclear reactor of heaven, and mortals don't belong here. Understandably, Isaiah is terrified. He says, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That that judgment was hard words for people, but to his credit, Isaiah doesn't spare himself in the mix. Lord, I'm a prophet, but I'm just a man too. A man of unclean lips, amid a people of unclean lips. Isaiah stands with the sinners. One who knows his own failings all too well. He knows the public embarrassments. The sins everyone knows about. He knows his private shames. The secrets only he knows about. How can this be? Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe to anyone who gets too close to such holy fire? Who can stand so closely to the pure heart of God's holiness? 
But then, the surprise. One of these six-winged creatures swoops down and takes tongs and picks up a live coal from the altar, burning bright with holy fire, and presses that coal against the prophet's unclean lips. And the crazy part? It doesn't destroy him. He doesn't explode. He doesn't burn up. Isaiah isn't crushed into a speck. He isn't struck with leprosy or some other disease of judgment. This isn't his undoing. This is Isaiah's redemption. Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. The holy thing, the holy place did not destroy him. Instead, this coal of holy fire has made Isaiah clean. It's blotted out his sin, making him new, taking away his guilt. Isaiah's holiness is pure gift. It's a complete surprise. And so, the temple where Uzziah desecrated and shamed himself is Isaiah's place of redemption and healing. The man with unclean lips made clean. This crazy and over-the-top, astonishing call of Isaiah's story is where the prophet finds his footing. His assurance that God's ultimate purpose is not to destroy, but to make new. Even as he predicts days to come, days when the land will be desolate, the cities laid waste and empty, and the people scattered, comparing the nation to a tree cut down and burned to a cinder. Judgment for the nation is still coming. The voice of heaven is sure of this. But Isaiah responds like a classic Jewish prophet. How long, O Lord? How long do your people have to suffer such terrible judgment? And the Lord tells Isaiah that this time around, the devastation will be truly terrible. When all that is left is this charred stump. But he assures them that this isn't the last word. The charred stump will become a holy seed. The first glimpse of a whole new thing. The stump that was burned becomes a place of new life. As the story of Isaiah continues, as the rest of Scripture unfolds, we get to see glimpses of this whole new thing. We get to be a part of this whole new thing. God's presence, pure gift to the human race. God's presence made known in flesh, realized in the truly human one. The living coal of God's holiness touches the earth. Advent is just around the corner, friends. Each of these scriptures and so many more assure us that our story is a work in progress. It is a path of healing and restoration. Even as we wonder, even as we wait, even as we cry out and say to God, how long? This holy seed grows in our midst. What a gift it is to worship each week as a part of a community. Gathered companions who together name the ways that they are people with unclean lips. Unkind hearts. Secret jealousies and prejudices. The struggle is real. 
But what a mercy it is to hear the words of assurance. Your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Each week, like Isaiah, we leave this place as sent people, alive with God's purpose, burning with God's holiness. We listen. We wait. We get to be prophets in a troubled world, speaking words of hope, bearers of God's holy seed on planet Earth. Carrying this same message time and again, God loves human beings, each of us, all of us, and we need not be afraid. Thanks be to God. Amen.